This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. We know that this is hard for Philip. He has been working three years, and it's also not easy for him to stand on the sidelines. He knows that Elizabeth is doing these deeds alone, that she's honey-trapping alone. But still, like he's come back to Chicago. The mission has gone completely to shit. What they feared would happen has happened. But still, he doesn't let her do it. It is him that breaks the glass, gets the axe, and knows that beheading her and taking the hands will protect them. And that's why he's doing it. He's doing it because he loves her and he wants to protect them. I think that's pretty romantic. Hello and welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts and your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Later, we'll hear a little bit from Noah Emmerich about the nature of Stan Beeman's suspicions, from spycraft expert H. Keith Melton about Stan's searching skills, and from stunt coordinator Ian McLaughlin about that scene in the Chicago garage. But first, a conversation with Sarah Nolan, who wrote this episode, Harvest. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you've probably heard Sarah Nolan's name dozens of times. For the last couple of seasons, she's worked with showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, and she helps me set up the interviews, helps me, meaning she sets up the interviews and set visits that we make for the show. And she's also the writer of episode 607 of The Americans, Harvest, Sarah, you're a guest wrangler turned guest. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So I do want to know more about your evolving role on the show. But first, let's talk about this very, very action packed. (laughs) Okay. So in the teaser, Stan and Philip have a moment. As viewers, we know that there's no way that the story could have ended there. But in your mind and in the writer's room, was there ever a possibility that Philip might have come clean to Stan right there? I don't remember us discussing him full out confessing, just knowing it's seven of 10 and we have an end game in mind. But I think in those moments, being in the character's shoes, what we or I thought of for that scene, at least, was that the half truths are the most interesting. If Philip were to give a flat out lie to Stan, like Elizabeth is cheating on me or I'm cheating on Elizabeth or something like that. But this, with the travel agency, it hits so much more of an emotional truth. And I think that is something for the character, Philip playing Philip Jennings. It just becomes more of a a better lie because the emotional truth is right. And so it feels like he's not lying as much to his best friend. Right. And you're convinced that that is a true friendship. 
I am. I've always yeah. thought of it. You know, it's the closest thing to a true friendship that Philip has ever had. Philip and Elizabeth are together again in this episode. And clearly the engine of the show, again, demands that those two be together as the, you know, the entire series culminates. But they had been so distant and separate. Why do you think Philip decided to help Elizabeth and essentially throw in his lot with her again? Well, I think a big part of it is recognizing in her voice at the the phone call at the end of 606 that she needs him. And, you know, it's Elizabeth Jennings. She doesn't ask for help. She's a badass. So the fact that she was cracking a little bit and he is the most equipped and experienced in seeing through that the few times, if ever it does really happen, he just knows as her husband, they're partners. He can see right through her trying to do right by their deal for him to work at the travel agency and knows that she actually is a little worried about this mission and needs him. I have one plot question. The Latino guy who drives the car, Mm -hmm. is he an operative or is he a random day laborer that they really do just pick up on the street? He's the latter. He's a random day laborer that they pick up off the street. And part of that is they know inevitably he's going to be arrested and interrogated. So in that, he really can't unveil anything. It's not like he's an operative such as Norm or Hank who they could dig into and find out that you know they had a cover and they're from the D.C. area and this and that. It was just safer for all of their covers to get someone random. That makes sense. But then also, it's a huge role for that guy. I mean, that it's a mm-hmm. very important role that he plays. And you know, I, I know that I would just have messed it up. Like, it's, it's putting an awful lot. I mean, it seems like an operational risk to put so much weight on a Randall's shoulders. Yeah, well, give yourself more credit. But <laughs> they also are trained in a way, like, there's a way they even speak, and Stan can speak this way too, that's very directed and rhythmic. So they know and are confident that they can guide this guy to do what he needs to do. They simplified the mission for him. They only need 30 seconds or so to get away. So really, they just need him to get in the car and drive long enough on Dan's route that they can go the other direction. There's a complicated and I'm sure completely authentic follow Mm -hmm. scene in Chicago. Were the nuts and bolts of that scene challenging to write because of the show's demand that it be just as operatives really would have done it? It wasn't challenging just because I've been with the show for about three years. So I've become very accustomed to the way we clearly try and display the spy craft. Mm-hmm. And I actually, for that follow scene, I referenced earlier in season three, we had the slow chase car sequence. And I referenced the formatting and just the clarity there to help me make sure like in my script, it was consistent with the show, but also kind of very clear and spycraft sound but i also spoke on the phone a lot with keith melton one of our technical advisors and he has a great clear way of explaining these things but he's also very enthusiastic so it's just like a joy to learn like i wish they taught this in college because he just like obviously loves it so keith has a great way of boiling it down to its bare bones and so i think that also rubbed off when i went to write it i knew how to break it down You also have an extraordinarily gory scene in the garage in Chicago. (laughs) Now, was that hard or is that just like, well, that's just what would happen? How did you handle that? 
Well, it's funny that you described it as gory. And I've been getting a lot of feedback, let's say, on that scene because my perspective on it, we were location scouting and doing a tech scout with me and the director, Stefan Schwartz. And we were talking about that scene. And I mentioned that I thought it was very romantic. And he made a comment. He was like, I would not want to date you. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And I was like, well, in the world of these characters, like, I do think it's really romantic. I mean, we've seen them do worse before with the suitcase and the necklacing and you know the teeth pulling and and I feel like I really had those scenes in mind with this scene and I just really saw an intimacy and this is the first time all season we're seeing them work together and connected on this level and I just wanted to make a scene that was reflective of that intimacy. So the tooth pulling scene yes that was hella intimate but tell me please just exactly more about how you see the beheading and hand cutting off as intimate and romantic? (laughs) Well, I see it intimate and romantic because we know that this is hard for Philip. We know more than we've ever known just how hard it is. I mean, he's quit. He has been working three years and it's also not easy for him to stand on the sidelines knowing like he's done the work. He knows that Elizabeth is doing these deeds alone, that she's honey trapping alone. But still, like he's come back to Chicago. The mission has gone completely to shit. Their worst nightmare of it, what they feared would happen, has happened. But still, he doesn't let her do it. It is him that breaks the glass, gets the axe, and knows that beheading her and taking the hands will protect them. And that's why he's doing it. He's doing it because he loves her and he wants to protect them. And I mean, I think that's pretty romantic. In recent episodes, Elizabeth has been completely exhausted and and for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But we see her extraordinary competence in this scene because we have all of that that goes on in Chicago, which is huge amount of stuff, complications, emotional, operational stuff, violence. Then she has to deal with the Haskers. Then with Jackson, with Paige. Is there a point at which you think even Elizabeth can't keep this many plates spinning? Well, we'll see (laughs) if she can. I mean, I think Elizabeth is incredible. I can relate to as even like a writer filmmaker. It's not always an easy life. The set life is not cushy, but we all know Elizabeth believes in this cause. I don't think you can be a filmmaker or screenwriter if you don't love it. It can be very grueling. So you just kind of dig deep and find this other reserve. I mean, you know, the well is only so deep. So we'll see what happens in the end game of the series, but she's struggling and failing a mission for her is not an easy thing to take or admit. Well, and especially when failure could mean what happened to Marilyn, essentially. Yeah. And also the fact that she didn't get Dan out and Dan was wearing a suicide necklace as well. So she literally saw her own fate potentially before her eyes. Elizabeth confronts Paige with an ultimatum in or out And it's for life. And Paige says she's in. And she really seems to mean it. Why do you think she made that decision? Well, that scene means a lot to me personally. Because when I started writing on the show, I wrote a lot for Paige. So in approaching that scene, again, I really honestly grounded it a lot in my personal experience. And, you know, my craft and what you give up and sacrifice to have a a creative life even. So I think, you know, whenever she says, this is what I've always wanted to make a difference, she means it. 
But it's also one thing to say it, and it's another thing to experience it. If she had to chop Marilyn's head and hands off, you know, she still she knows a lot. She knows a lot more than she ever did about what her parents do and what it entails. And now she knows that death is a possibility, but she hasn't, again, been axing somebody. So I think as much as she can, her she's very earnest, but she also, it's a mother-daughter scene. You know, she admires her mother and she wants to be that, but there's also a part of Philip in her that she might not be recognizing. So, So back to you. As I mentioned earlier, although this is your first script... You've been working on the show for three years. Tell me what you've been doing until this year. Yes. So I came into the Americans as a fan of the show. It was my favorite show. And I basically hunted down slash used spycraft to become (laughs) Joel Fields, the showrunner's assistant, and have been here for the last three years. And I really just wanted to come here and learn an osmosis from who I thought were doing it the best. And it's the only show I wanted to work for. So it's been like an absolute dream come true. The whole experience has been surreal, though, going from being a fan completely on the other side of it to so deep Mm. having my hands into absolutely everything I can behind the scenes and sitting in meetings, being involved in projects such as the podcast Mm. and, you know, just wearing many hats and trying to contribute since season four in as many ways as possible. And Joe and Joel have been absolutely supportive from day one. They made it clear that if I had an idea or if I wanted to do something to just ask, like ball was in my court at that point, but you know, like the opportunity was there and they've been very supportive and, and championing me. And it's just been very exciting. So how did you come to write a script? Because obviously there's a difference between being in the writer's room and being like, the writer for a you know major television show. Yes, it's very it's been actually I mean looking back in the during the process I never really believed that it would happen. There's no precedent, but it was really natural. I just loved the show. So from day 1, I actually came from the tech industry and I was an assistant there and I had been writing on my own and I knew the next step for me was a writer's room. I love the Americans and I had watched an interview that Joel was in and he was smiling. He's very nice and he would not take any credit. Like, I mean, it was a round table interview. There are other personalities and egos in the room that I had no interest in, but he talked about collaborating with the cast and the crew and the editors specifically that really spoke to me and talking about viewing the last rewrite as in the editing room. And it really resounded with something I had become to believe as an independent filmmaker, making my own shorts and writing on my own. So there was just this gut feeling that like, he's who I want to learn from. I was acting on that gut instinct, but it paid back in so many ways. And just he has been incredible to learn from. But all of the writers and Joe and the entire crew, like I was just shadowed. And Chris Long, I have directing interests. And Chris Long always welcomed me to set and would pull me aside and like, you know, give me insight on his approach to scenes. And so it's really been like the greatest graduate course that anyone could ever imagine. We already know American U is in Washington, but Americans U is in Gowanus. Yes. (laughs) One of the things I know that you've done outside of the writer's room has been research. I know this because, Mm -hmm. for example, last winter, I found you reading like a 35-year-old book about (laughs) running a travel agency. How did 
that research, specifically the bit about travel agencies from the 1980s get incorporated into the show? So I read two books about travel agencies in the 1980s, which is really interesting just how specific they got. We knew there was going to be a time jump. And with that, that um, Philip was going to make efforts to expand and improve the travel agency. So I read a lot about automation and just keeping up with things that way and just the different phases of automation and what was realistic for a company the size of DuPont Circle Travel. So it is very like atmospheric behind the scenes, but even if he's talking about a package such as earlier in the season, I think episode two, he is talking with Rick about selling cruises. And part of my research from those books was that was exactly what's in the show that, um, cruises earn them the highest profit margins like they make really big profits on those packages so it's great to push them and so it was incredible that these resources had that kind of detail but we couldn't find someone even from around that time that could remember all that so by reading this book that really helped us and so just painting little details of that informing what kind of computers and the ticketing machine and the teaser what that would look like all came from my research from those books. And apart from the inner workings of 1980s travel agencies, what other nuggets of 1980s information have you dug out for the show over the years? One of my early bigger research projects was the um, Patty Disguise in season four with Young Hee. So she became a um, Mary Kay salesperson. Little do you probably know, she started as an ERA woman. And we were really hoping to do something political that they were doing door-to-door work. I actually befriended some lovely women who were a part of the ERA in the 1980s. Because my instinct is honestly always to pick up the phone and just try and find a primary source who was there at the time. And usually they have more detailed memory too. So it's more interesting research. So yeah, I tracked down and befriended two women who were active in the ERA during that specific month and year in the 80s. And unfortunately, through that research, I found that they just weren't doing it. They weren't doing door to door. Yes, they were writing some letters, but because our timeline is so specific, it just didn't work for the story. I mean, our show is unique that whenever I pass along my research to Joe and Joel, instead of, you know, shrugging and being like, oh, well, it's, you know, officially fiction and just forcing it into our story, they're like, ah, we need something else. And I mentioned because my mom was actually an Avon saleswoman whenever I was younger and one of my best friends in high school, her mom was a Mary Kay saleswoman. So in my head, I was just like, this is kind of like so not Elizabeth, which makes it even more interesting. But it's such a thing mothers and especially single mothers would do to supplement income and stuff like that. So and it was just a really interesting period nod. So it worked out. But that was definitely a rewarding research contribution. Uh, This year, I actually another one was uh, Oleg, his studies at the urban transport planning. My older brother is a civil engineer. (laughs) So again, instead of trolling the internet, I just asked him like, hey, like, what are some courses? Do you know any professors or textbooks I can reference? And he sent me pictures immediately of his textbooks and put me in touch with professors that then introduced me to professors in the Washington, D.C. area in civil engineering in that time. So George Mason really does or did have? Yes. Wow. 
I forget the name of the professor, but he sent me uh, syllabuses that he had on file, which was incredible and just insanely helpful because it's really hard to find like that sort of detail. They don't keep records like we do now. And sometimes it can be very, very challenging. But then you find like a gold mine or that one little detail. I asked Noah Emmerich to analyze Stan's feelings about the Jenningses. In 607, the old suspicions that Stan had about Philip and Elizabeth return around the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. Do you think that Stan ever truly trusted them? I mean, did he just kind of push it aside? Because the fact that, you know, the way that it just comes back so strong to him. I think on some macro level, we all know everything all the time. And what we let ourselves know and don't is another issue. But somewhere, I I believe on some, you know, spiritual level, we all know all the truth. But I think in the quotidian of Stan's life, he has completely sidelined any suspicions of Philip and Elizabeth. I think his friendship with Philip is authentic and real and important and meaningful to Stan. I don't think it's tainted with any sort of visceral suspicion. But as you mentioned, it does come back, sort of flooded back rather quickly in a way that it wouldn't, I think, if it was someone that you had no suspicion of whatsoever. I think it taps into that primal truth that we all carry to some degree of knowing it all. I spoke to friends who were in relationships and even got married and they, and then the marriage didn't work out. And they say, you know, I knew looking back at it, I knew on the day that I got married that this marriage wasn't going to work. I said, well, why did you, why did you go through with this? I, I don't know. I don't know because they didn't know consciously, but they knew unconsciously. I feel like that's the realm where Philip lives inside Stan's thinking is that somewhere there's something's off and something's wrong enough. So that when Elizabeth, has to leave on Thanksgiving is not taken regularly. It's taken, has a quite a large resonance for Stan. It taps into some primal understanding of something else that's there that he's not cognizant of consciously. I don't think in a daily way, but, but is, is definitely alive in him from the very first time that he met them and the coincidence of their car being the same make and model of the car that was found near seen near where Timoshev was abducted. That never goes away. It gets put to bed and it sleeps deeply, but it's in the bed. I asked Spycraft expert H. Keith Melton, who we heard from earlier in the series, to evaluate Stan's searching skills as displayed in this episode. Stan once again gives in to his suspicions about Philip and Elizabeth, and he finds an opportunity to search their house. They're both away, and he knows there's no one there, and he goes in there and If you're rooting for Philip and Elizabeth, it's great that he doesn't find anything. But at the same time, you sort of think, Stan, you're a professional, an intelligence officer. Why can't you find them? So in a case like that, why is he unable to find things? Shouldn't he be able to? Normally, searches are done by teams of individuals. To conduct a search is very, very difficult. It's so time-consuming. Actually, probably the Best searches are conducted by counter-narcotics officers. People looking to hide drugs, I think, in a way, are probably even more innovative than spies. If you remember the the KGB spy John Walker that was arrested in 1985, Mm -hmm. the FBI searched his home in uh, Virginia Beach. They they searched it with a team of criminal anti-narcotics searchers just because they were so good. So when Stan goes in, 
part of the difficulty is he doesn't have a baseline. He doesn't really know for sure what he's looking for. So in reality, he's just looking for something that doesn't seem to appear at as it is. And if something is well hidden, if an intelligence officer or an intelligence service has designed a concealment, and if it's well done, it's not going to be found by a random search. It's going to be found with a portable x-ray machine by a team of people, by a cabinet maker who's looking at measurements, dimensions, and trying to find a secret opening. So the idea that, that Stan could go, and especially with a team of Russian illegals, find something out of place is not surprising at all. It just shows the difficulty when it's done by people that know what they're doing. Before we sign off this week, a few words from stunt coordinator Ian McLaughlin about the challenges of filming that gory scene in the Chicago garage. It was written originally much bigger, but we still got the same feel out of it after reducing it after lots of meetings and, and really sort of boiling it down to this this poem of a, a scene. The complications are trying to show something with huge energy, like swinging an axe into a body. A lot of it is, like you said, performing. And that's one of the biggest parts of stunts is getting a performance out of someone. We had to use, obviously, mannequins and lots of VFX. We did have a stunt woman on hand. Obviously, we weren't hitting her with an axe, but for dragging her out of the van and crashing to the ground, things like that. It's interesting on, on days like that. They're, they're very difficult. You rely heavily on VFX to really steer us through on what they need for each shot and uh, angles. And it's fun. Every, everybody sort of chimes in on that stuff. But, you know, obviously run by the director. Thanks to Sarah Nolan, Noah Emmerich, H. Keith Melton and Ian McLaughlin. Thanks also to Daniel Schrader for recording assistance and this week more than ever to the Americans Sarah Nolan for organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing episode 608, The Summit, with some very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening. Listener.